Okay, we are starting in Nahum, after having finished Micah, uh, actually two weeks ago. So, shall we bow forward a prayer as we begin? Dear God in heaven, as we come to you, we thank you once again for being with us throughout the week. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide and direct in our study of your word, that we will be able to learn from the uh, writings of Nahum, and that we would be able to apply these to our own lives. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, we were studying Micah, and Micah was prophesying from 735 B.C. to about 700 B.C. Those are kind of rough figures. And this was during the time of Isaiah. And then Isaiah was also a prophet. And then we had Hezekiah, who was the king then. And Hezekiah as being a king is always one of the easier ones to remember because he built the tunnel. And I've, built, I've bumped my head in many places in that tunnel. So uh, I, I remember that quite distinctly. Then we have Nahum. Nahum came about a hundred years after Micah. And he uh, was preceding Jeremiah, who was the major prophet at that time. And he was the king during the time of, of Manasseh, and also Josiah. Now, Josiah was one of the better kings. He was probably one of the best kings of the divided kingdom. You would have to say that David was probably the best king of Israel, but then we had go from David on to Solomon, and then we have the split of the kingdom, and uh, Josiah was probably the one of the best ones. Josiah is the king that when he was king, they discovered the book of the law in the temple. The Priests were doing some, I don't know if it was spring cleaning or fall cleaning, but anyway, they were doing some cleaning of the temple, and as they were going through some of the recesses and closets and so on, they found this book of the law, and they had not been reading this for some time, and this is probably parts of Deuteronomy that they discovered there, and so Josiah uh, Josiah had them read through this, and they went uh, on with, uh, with trying to obey the things that were given there. Okay, here, I don't know if you can see this chart. That's a disappointing thing about the chart and the fact that most of you come early to a Baptist meeting so you can sit in the back. Uh, but we have, this is the... Northern Kingdom, Hosea was the end of the Northern Kingdom, and we see that Micah was prophesying shortly after the end of the Northern Kingdom. Then here we had Hezekiah, Micah during that time, on to Manasseh, and then we had Ammon. Ammon only reigned for two years. He was a very wicked king. And in fact, his, uh, 
his uh, cabinet killed him. And so uh, he, he was not a favorite there. So he's killed by his own servants. Then we have, have Josiah, who came on in after that. Josiah started, became king when he was only eight years old. But at age eight years old, he wasn't able to do much ruling. And so he really didn't start ruling until he was about 12 years old that he started ruling. You think 12 years old, you know, you look at one of your sons or daughters that are 12 years old and think, should they be ruling a country? Well, sometimes I think we've got people that age that are ruling our country right now. But anyway, <laughs> my political commentary for the day. <laughs> but uh, during that time, at 12 years of age, you were considered to be beginning manhood. And so you were starting to do things there that probably we wouldn't expect now until a 20-year-old. But anyway, he had the, uh, we have uh, Nahum that now came on in during this time. Nahum was prophesying. The blank ones are prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and major prophets. Daniel was sometime later. And after Nahum, we end up with where we have the Babylonian activity. So that gives us a little bit of the, of the individuals, the Jewish individuals. This gives us a little bit of a context as to where we were politically. The red up there is the Assyrian Empire, and the individual there would be Sennacherib. He was probably the major individual of, of, of that time. That was the Assyrian Empire. And I've shown you the map of Assyria, which covered pretty much all of the Middle East. Then we go on to the Babylonian Empire, and this would be Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was ruling during this time. And we see that we have Josiah, Manasseh, so on during this time. And we've got Nahum is prophesying during this time of Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar, when he, the Babylonian Empire uh, went down, then we had the Persian Empire that came on in, and the individual there would be Cyrus. Now this is the time where we have the 70 years of captivity where the Jews were taken to Babylon, and uh, they were there, and then Cyrus is the king that sent, or the ruler that sent them back, the Jews back to Israel. Okay, again, we have Judea, or Judah, which is this area. We have Samaria over here, and then Syria way up there in the corner uh, to see a little bit of the geography. This area was the northern kingdom, was by this time, the time of Nahum, was, uh, was uh, not, no longer Jewish. Okay, here again we see the complete Assyrian Empire, and uh, this was the early one. Then we had the Babylonian and the Persian Empire coming on in after that. Okay, the kings of 
have the kings of Judah. This would be the southern king. And I just started arbitrarily at one place. Ahaz, he was a bad king. This was during the time of Micah and Isaiah. This was the end of Samaria or the northern kingdom. Then we had Hezekiah. He was a good king. This, he built a tunnel to be able to bring water in from the springs into the city because Jerusalem had walls around it. The enemy was trying to cut off the water. By building this tunnel, he was able to get water into the city. So this was Sennacherib, was king of Assyria at this time. Then Manasseh, he was bad to start with, but he had kind of a foxhole conversion. At the end of his life, he uh, turned, he was the longest reigning monarch. And now the Assyrian king at this time was Ashurbanipal, uh, and I'm not sure where to put the emphasis on that one. But anyway, uh, we have the kingdom was, was weakening, and then Nahum was on the scene But Nahum did not preach directly to Judah. Nahum was preaching to Nineveh. This was about 150 years after Jonah was preaching to Nineveh. Now Jonah went to preach to Nineveh. The Ninevites uh, repented of their sin. And uh, remember that Noah threw a fit and uh, sat underneath the tree and and, uh, moped and cried and so on. But uh, this was all in the Lord's leading. And then we have Amon, who was mentioned him before. He was very bad, assassinated by his own staff. Then we have Josiah, who is very good. Okay. Ashurbanipal dies. This is when the books of the law was discovered. Nebuchadnezzar captured Assyria. And then we had four minor kings, and then Judah was captured by Nebuchadnezzar. And then we have the 70 years in Babylon. And we have Cyrus, the ruler of Persia, then captured Babylon. And he is the one that encouraged the Jews to go back to uh, their homeland. And this leads us to Nehemiah and uh, Ezra. And we went through that some time ago. Uh, Okay, the book of Nehemiah, excuse me, the book of Nahum is an it's an incomplete acrostic. Now, an acrostic is where you take a letter of a word or something like this and you now build sentences off of this. And I'm sure that some of you have done your Christmas um, letters, your Christmas... uh, What's the word that I want here? Uh, The greetings that you send on out to catch, have all the relatives catch up with what you've been doing. And so you put down Merry Christmas, and the first words all start with M, and then with E, and so on. Well, here's an example of an acrostic of friends. Okay, F, friends are precious gifts, are rare and hard to find. Uh, I, invisible when, li- when life is good. That should be an L-I-F-E. Um, E, ever near when your sun doesn't shine. N, nothing is ever too much. D, distance is never too far. And S, standing by your side when needed. 
I picked up this acrostic because it's been so evident in my life for the last month. And I just really, really appreciate it. But anyway, name is an acrostic. It's an incomplete acrostic, and it's basically the first uh, verses 2 through 8, which are this acrostic. Now, this would be in Hebrew, and so I am not going to get the Hebrew up here. But anyway, we, uh, we see how the book itself was was uh, written. Uh, okay, also, the, I should mention this, that during the time of the Syrians, uh, this was also the time of Esther. Now, so Esther was fairly late in our history of minor prophets. Any comments or questions before we actually get to Nahum? Yes, John. Uh, basically, it's just the length of the book that they have, and uh, the the minor prophets. I probably are eight, nine chapters or less, and the major prophets are in the twenty-five and on up. Any other questions? Yes. Where, right. Where's Nineveh located in regards to where? Okay. All right, I've got the answer for you. <laughs> so, here is where Palestine is, or Jerusalem is right there, and Nineveh is up there, and Babylon is over here. So, Nineveh was the headquarters of the, kings of the kingdom of Assyria. Then we went to Babylon. Babylon was... They had there, and this is where the Jews were taken to, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar to uh, Babylon. So Nineveh is up there a ways. Yes? Yeah, social media. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, Eric. Right. Right. And they would send this by courier, uh, and the couriers would take it on around to the various capitals, and eventually it would end up at the head place. So uh, they, they would write, write and send it out this way. I know sometimes we think that uh, we are the only ones that have a good method of communication, but uh, the ancients were able to communicate quite quickly also, probably not as fast as we do, but uh, they were able to communicate. Any other questions? Okay, then we get to the book of Nahum itself. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Okay, an oracle 
is simply another name for a book. And so uh, Nahum is just saying that this is something, this is that he's written, and it is a vision that he has received, and it's concerning Nineveh. He is pointing out the where it's supposed to go to. And then it says that Nahum of Elkosh. We don't know where Elkosh was. Uh, some people think that it was in the present day of Iran, and so if it was there, then he wouldn't have to send the message that far because Iran is over in here. Well, I suppose it's just the opposite direction. So some people think it was Iran. Other thing, people think that Nahum comes from the word Capernaum. Now, Capernaum would be over here. There's Capernaum. And uh, so it's possible that his name comes from his hometown. And so just like somebody coming from Texas is called Tex, uh, Nahum could have been from Capernaum. And that's, that's speculation. And it doesn't really make that much difference. Uh, we don't have any other information, as far as I know, about the uh, city of Elkosh or the territory of Elkosh, where Nahum says that he is from. Okay, then we go, the, they said it's the incomplete acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, and we now go to the uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 14, and this shows us the character of God. And so Nahum is trying to impress upon the Ninevites that God is a... Uh, a a God, a holy God. He is a God that does not uh, tolerate sin, and he is trying to get the people to repent. And so the first few verses here, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So we see that he is pointing out the fact that, the, that God is the one that's going to be taking the vengeance on this. And if we go on to Psalm, we see that God is the only one that should be taking vengeance. We are not, we, we don't know enough to be able to avenge correctly. Psalm 94, there are several verses here. 94 verses 1 and 2, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Now here's one thing that I have a hard time understanding. And this is that God used these heathen kings, foreign countries 
to punish Israel. But then he also punished these kings for overstepping their bounds, it seems like. And I'm not sure just exactly how God makes the, the decision on this. I just saw a quote or read a quote last night that said that uh, someone said that uh, I'm praying for clarity. And the answer was, don't pray for clarity. Pray for trust, that you can trust the God who is holding you in the palm of your hand. You don't have to pray that you will understand what the God is doing. That would be clarity. You, you can't do that. You aren't smart enough to be able to figure that out. So you should just trust in God, so pray for trust that you would be able to follow. And <clears throat> I think once again that uh, in my situation that this is something that really struck me again is that, you know, why did God take Ruth at this time? That's not my decision. My decision is to say that, God, you know what's best, and if this is best for me, then I accept you taking care of me. And so we see the same thing here with the, the individuals that are, are uh, chastising Israel, that, you know, how, how does God draw the line on this? We also have in Psalm 94, verses 14 through 15, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. And then verses 22 and 23, But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity, and wipe them out for their wickedness, the Lord our God will wipe them out. So God is the one that is in charge of the vengeance. We are not. Now, why do nations war against nations today? What are some of the reasons why, Mike? Okay, so people are warring against others because of financial gain and greed. John? Power. power. Okay, so they're looking for power, and so this is one of the reasons why we have this. And so we have uh, any other reasons why uh, we have war between nations? Yes, Flora. Okay. All right. Okay, it's that concentration of power, why they're, uh, why they're warring. What was God's purpose in having war? Grant? Grant? 
Okay. All right. So God used a loud war to take place as a, uh, a lesson, a spanking, you might say, for the uh, Jewish people. And so we see that God was using war in a totally different way than what war is being used for today. Okay, so there's basically countries are, are jealous of other countries. They are wrathful. There's vengeance. And so uh, we see that the heathen gods were... Uh, what characterized the heathen gods? Uh, there's not one particular thing, but there's a, a category of things that characterized the heathen gods. Okay, they were ruthless. Yes. Okay. 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 Right. Yes, right. Okay. So he, All right, right there. Is that the God Yahweh is a God of love, holiness, concern. The gods that the heathens worshipped were gods that were vengeful and were, uh, you had to bow down to them uh, just to kind of cower to them. They were not interested in uh, your good. So God is saying here that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So God can use these things to, uh, to be examples and so on, but it says, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. And so he's saying now that God can use these same things that the heathen people were ascribing to their gods. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Were describing to their gods. And God could use those people. So, or those, those areas. He says he dries up all the Rivers. Now, we see this part of Israel. We have the northern area. This is close to Lebanon. And this is up there, beautiful areas and so on. You Negev is desert. It is dry, it is dusty, it's barren, and uh, so there's not really much there. Anyway, that these are areas up here 
that hard can actually cause those to be dry. So we have the area of nation. This is looking into Syria. And you see, you are seeing a Syrian country. We're standing on Israel land at this point. Uh, interesting thing is between those cities and uh, the, where they're standing is no Now the Syrians will farm no man's land because the Israelis won't do anything to them. The Israelis do not go in to farm no man's land because if the Syrians come and attack them, the Israeli army will not rescue them. So the, the Syrians know that the Israeli army is not going to evict them. So we have this no man's land there. But it is, it's very fertile land. Although interesting, our son Scott is nobody living in those, that village over there. They had evacuated that. So we have Bashan. Then we also have Carmel. And Carmel is by the, uh, the uh, valley of Megiddo. And uh, this is looking from the mountain, uh, Mount Carmel, looking on down into picture before or one similar, but the very fertile area, and uh, this, uh, <clears throat> again, God can, can dry that up. Then we have Dan, <clears throat> the, uh, um, okay, it says the, the bloom of Lebanon. Okay, Dan They grew in this area, and so you But the Lord telling the Ninevites through Nahum, I can dry these areas up. I can make it miserable for you there also. And so the character of God is that he is trying to show them that they need to, um, that, that he is in control. Now, verses 5 and 6 the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So God controls the creation. Uh, this is one of the things that we have to realize, and that our politicians don't realize at this time that God controls the creation. Uh, man does not control the creation. And so uh, God is pointing this out to these people that I control the creation and you need to uh, pay attention. And it's, We have a rhetorical question in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Okay. No, no one can stand before God's indignation. And it talks about some of the things that are happening. The mountains quake, melt, the earth heaves, and so on. I don't know of any specific situations that we can point to. Uh, 
other than the fact that earthquakes are not that uncommon, especially in certain parts of the world. Uh, you have uh, Iceland is right now having problems with volcanoes that are on the loose. And uh, so there are, uh, God is allowing things to take place. Then we go on with next section is God's care for Judah, verses 7 through 11. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He, know, <clears throat> he knows those who take refuge in him. So th this is one of the things that we, we know. The Lord is good, but sometimes we don't really believe it until we experience some things that are difficult in our life. And then we can realize that the Lord is good, and he is a stronghold. We can depend on him. And he's telling the Ninevites the same thing, that even though you are going to be punished, or you're going to be set on by the enemy, if you turn to the Lord, he's good. And he will, <clears throat> he will take those in who take refuge in him. Then we see, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, <clears throat> this is a contrast to verse 4. Verse 4 says he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. These um, lush places are going to wither. It's going to be a sign of drought. But here in verse 8, he says, with overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. So again, we do not need to understand why God is doing these things. We just know, need to understand that God is going to care for his own while these things are happening. So we see that, um, and, and Nineveh was destroyed. Uh, the city, it was, a, it was a very large city, but it was destroyed and it was not discovered until 1820 when people finally discovered the ruins of Nineveh and they have been doing excavations there since that time, but God was faithful in saying that it would be destroyed. Verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end, and trouble will not rise up a second time. So, God does not have to say, well, you know, I, I tried this method of discipline, and it didn't work, so I'll try something else the next time. Uh, he is saying that when I discipline, when I uh, judge someone, that is the final judgment. There is no other court to go to. So we see that this was uh, the finality of the destruction of, of Nineveh was complete. Then verse 10, for they are entangled thorns like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. Again, he's talking about what's going to happen to Nineveh and what's going to happen to the people who are persecuting the uh, Israelites and uh, they are like, I don't know how many of you gotten caught up in a thorny ticket, thicket of some type. Uh, out on the prairies, we had something which are called thorn apples. 
And these trees have thorns that are about so long, and they're, they're tough. And every once in a while, the sheep especially, they would crawl underneath these thorn apple trees, and you had to go in there and get them out. And so it was, it was not a fun job to try and get them out from underneath there. And sometimes they couldn't get out. They would get their wool caught on this. But it's talking about entangled with thorns. Like drunkards as they drink, not able to find their way. And they are stumbling around, not able to go anywhere they want to. And consumed like a stubble fully dried. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen a prairie fire on dry grass and uh, how this can go. Or uh, you used to be, had to be careful of this. You had a stubble field and you drove out into there with a truck and the muffler was hot, and uh, the muffler would start to straw on fire, and you had a blazing inferno very, very quickly. And so this is the idea that we have here. The one thing that I have experienced from this, I very foolishly one time tried to get rid of a bag of sawdust. I had a big paper bag of sawdust like this, and I threw that into the fireplace. And uh, we heated up the house really quickly. <laughs> and so anyway, but this is what it's talking about, just a flash of fire that we have here. Then verse 11, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Okay, this would be all of the individuals that had been... Uh, that had been persecuting the Israelites, that they were worthless counselors. They had plotted evil. And then we see in verse 12, the Lord's word to Judah. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Here once again, we have to have trust in God's knowing what he is doing. And so the Lord is going to, um, the, the uh, Assyrians are going to fall. The Jews are going to have good fortune. And then we see in verse 13, And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. So there God is speaking to the Jews in Nineveh again, about the Assyrians, that they are going to um, be delivered uh, from the, these oppressors. In verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. So we have three different commands that are given in this verse. And uh, this is given to Nineveh, who appeared to be invincible at this time. This was one of the uh, wonders of the world, the city that had been built there. So what are the three commands that God has given in verse 14? These are things that are going to happen to the Ninevites, or to the Assyrians, I should say. Yes, Flora. No one will remember who they were. 
Okay, no one will remember who they were. It says their name will not be perpetuated. And so they are going to, uh, they're not going to be any more descendants from this. And we see this, the fact that the city of Nineveh was totally destroyed and was not discovered for about 2,000 years before it was discovered again. Okay, so we see that. What's another thing that's going to grant? Okay, God will make their grave. He's going to uh, dig Nineveh's grave. And the third command that we have, Pardon? Their gods will be destroyed. Right. All of their idols are going to be destroyed. And so we see that these are things that, uh, that have taken place and that God was faithful in this. In Isaiah chapter 10, we have the prophecy about this. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 8. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Then verses 10 and 11. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? We have this picture here of the images, uh, the idols that the Israelites, uh, that the Assyrians had, that they were greater than the God Yahweh. Uh, This was typical of their thinking. If you went to war and you lost, that means that your God was not as powerful as the other nation's God. And so now instead of having a one and done, You wanted to go for two out of three. And so maybe you could win the next two, which would show that your God was actually greater than their God anyway. If you lost another one, you went for three. uh, Yeah, just just kept on going. And so um, Isaiah is pointing to Assyria, that Assyria has this arrogance about it. Any nation that lives by its might and opposes God, cannot endure. Verse 15, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Okay, so what God is actually saying through Nahum to the Ninevites here and to the Jews, he is actually saying, Shalom. Okay, now shalom is a Jewish word that means everything is good. Everything is peaceful. Uh, See you later again. But we see that God is is pointing this out, that there's not going to be a true peace as long as Assyria is in control. Uh, Now, when Rome was in control and Assyria was in control, There was peace from other nations, but there was not peace in the nation. Uh, They had taxes to pay, they had a tribute to pay, they had to be subservient, and so on. But now God is pointing out that they will have true peace 
and they'll be able to go back to Jerusalem to see their, to have their feast days and to carry out all of their activities. Any comments or questions as we close? Yes, Eric. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. That army, that when they woke up, they found out they were all dead men. Uh, yes. Uh huh. And so. Right. Okay. Yes. This is final, final, right. finality here. He's just reminding them of what he did and that it was him that did it. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay, all right. Any other comments or questions? All right, you are dismissed then. We'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. <laughs>